From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Hello and welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner and Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen. Some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here every week here on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Of course, over the last 18 or 19 months, we've been doing the podcast edition and recording us on Zoom here because of COVID and, of course, trying to also bring COVID information to everybody here on Wharton Moneyball. So this week's show will be no different. For the first quarter, we're bringing in today a guest who's going to talk to us about the world of COVID and what we know from an analytics perspective. Um, Then in quarters two and three, we'll be having our open sports discussion. And then in quarter four today, we have a guest, uh, Craig O'Shaughnessy, who's going to talk to us about uh, tennis analytics. So again, one of the wonderful parts about Wharton Moneyball is that we get to interview guests who are experts, not like uh, Adi, Shane, and myself, who pretend to be experts on lots of topics <laughs> that are actually outside of statistics. And so today we have David Feigenbaum. David is an assistant professor of medicine and translational medicine and human genetics at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also founding director of the Center for Cytokine Storm Treatment and Laboratory and associate director of patient impact of the Penn Orphan Disease Center. And among other things, besides all of those titles he has, he's also the national best-selling author of Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. David, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Eric, thank you so, thank you so much for having me back on. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And again, um, we almost feel like it's a statistical obligation to talk about the empiricism and what is it that we know about COVID. And so it's great to have you on. So let me just start with the basics, just kind of an overall broad question. Um, Where are we right now in terms of, let's call it vaccination, how close we are potentially to herd immunity, um, where are we with the Delta variant? Where are we? I've just read an article today about the Lambda variant. Where do you think we are just in an overall sense? I, I think that um, you know, all of us are aware that we've certainly been moving in the right direction um, for a long time. Uh, but to use a sports analogy, I think the goalpost has been moving back a little bit. And so, you know, we're, we're moving down the field, but I think that the, the end zone is also um, moving down the field as well. And so I think we need to keep doing what we're doing in terms of vaccination. And we need to keep doing what we're doing in terms of maybe going back to some more um, masking. But um, unfortunately, it's a bit of a moving goalpost here. And uh even with um, vac- vaccination and even with masking, this um, this variant is really, really contagious. So let me so, ask you so, just, a, just a quick follow-up question that I know Adi wants to jump in. Just a quick follow-up question. Um, is this, do you see this primarily, because there's, I don't think there's much uncertainty here, but is this primarily a disease right now of the unvaccinated? Meaning it's clear that this the uh, vaccines we have appear to be extremely efficacious on preventing hospitalization and death of the people that are vaccinated. But now, you know, as you know, about a month ago, this surprising to us, maybe not to you result came out that while we can actually have a lot of the virus and we can spread the virus. Was that a shock and surprise to you as well? Or is it just a shock and surprise to us? 
It's not been a shock. There's actually never in the history of vaccines been what's called sterilizing immunity, meaning that you don't get the virus. What you do with a vaccine, you really raise the bar for the amount of virus you need to encounter to actually get the to get sick. Um, an analogy I've been using recently, I don't know if it's a good one, um, but it's like sunscreen. So when you put sunscreen on, it doesn't prevent you from getting a sunburn if you spend 20 hours in the sun, you're still going to get a sunburn, but it, it increases the amount of time you can spend in the sun before you get a sunburn. That's really what a vaccine does is it doesn't prevent you from getting a virus. It increases the amount of time exposure, um, the amount of virus you would need to actually get sick. Yep. Uh, let me turn it over to Adi, who I know has uh, maybe the next question here. So, David, uh, one of the things that that, uh, that really is and in your background and your current research, and I think would be very interesting to our listeners, is in chasing your, your cure, you you were able to discover off-label drugs and apply them to your own illness, which is Castleman's disease, to basically cure yourself, uh, at least hopefully forever and certainly by, for the time being. Um, and you have a research project right now, which is trying to do more or less the same thing for COVID, which is to locate uh, drugs that are on the market, and there's thousands of them, and and cull through the literature and decide what should be potentially uh, should be used as treatment. So uh, this is a, a multi-part question, but I'd, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about this project. And then I really would like to know like where we are in terms of if you do get sick and early, middle, late of your disease, w- what's being used in the hospitals to treat you? And how does that differ from um, phase one, phase two and the earlier rounds and the different variants? Sure. So we've been talking a lot about prevention thus far, but you're exactly right. And part of this war against COVID, you need to hit it from every angle. And so you need to prevent as many cases as you can. But when people get sick, you've got to save patients' lives with the tools at hand. And, and just as, as Adi said, um, back in actually November, uh, you may remember March, uh, Friday the 13th of March 2020 was the day that the U.S. really shut down. It's when the pandemic took over. And I, I found myself that night hoping that some research group somewhere would kind of follow our blueprint, the work that we had done to identify a drug that's saving my life and saving other patients' lives to, to literally, you know, leverage all drugs available to humankind to find the right drugs to treat COVID. And then a couple minutes later, I realized, wait a minute, why am I waiting for some research group somewhere to do it? We should just do it. And so we threw our hat in the ring back on, on Friday the 13th of March, 2020. And um, since then, we've been working, as Adi said, initially it was a 10-day challenge. We wanted to collect all of the data currently available at that stage in the pandemic and get a sense for what drugs were being used, what drugs are promising. At the time, we were hearing about things in the news that seemed like they were curing everyone and we were all getting really excited. We said, well, wait a minute, maybe we need to have some sort of way to systematically assess all of these drugs. And let's not forget the fact that there actually are 2,500 drugs approved for something um, that may be helpful for COVID. Who knows? Um, We were shocked early on to learn that over 100 drugs were used in the first two months of the pandemic, which just to give you a perspective, there are only 2,500 drugs that FDA has ever approved for anything. So for 100 drugs to be tried that rapidly, to us, it was this huge eye-opener. Oh my gosh, doctors and, and pharmaceutical companies are trying anything and everything, and we never would have imagined how high the number is now. Now it's over 500 drugs have been tried to treat COVID, and the reality is is that a few of those clearly work. And a few of them clearly don't work, 
but there are about 490 in the middle that might work, but they probably don't. Maybe they probably do work. And work for a subset of people, but not work for others. Exactly. And that's where the value of the Corona project is, is to actually pull all that data together so we can make informed decisions about which drugs look most promising. So we can actually do randomized controlled trials to prove which ones actually are effective. Well, let's let me build on Shane's point. So how much is there? Let's call it what we study a lot, which is heterogeneous treatment effects, which is certain drugs may work for certain forget stage. Maybe it's by stage, but even I would imagine a stage of severity, certain drugs might work for certain people versus others. How do you kind of like how do we get to being personalized medicine? Maybe if Eric Bradlow gets COVID, Eric Bradlow should get drugs one, seventeen, and twenty-three. And if it's Shane Jensen, he should get drugs two, fourteen, and forty-nine. Is that a hope and a dream, or is that actually reality? It's a little bit of both. So right now we can um, personalize medicine based on your timing within your disease course. So if you are um, newly diagnosed, there's a drug that we're all really excited about, fluvoxamine, that is now really pretty substantially proven to be effective. It's a drug for, for obsessive compulsive disorder, but it looks to be quite effective. So if you're early, fluvoxamine looks like it might be your drug. There's another drug, inhaled budesonide, that looks really promising early on. If you're newly hospitalized, remdesivir is your drug. If you're transferred to being on oxygen, you need dexamethasone. If you go into the ICU, you need tocilizumab. These are a handful of drugs. And then also in the ICU, you need heparin. So six drugs that have been around for decades that have been proven to be effective for COVID-19 and, and will save a, a large number of people's lives depending on when you get get treatment. And so we're, we're getting good at figuring out timing. What we haven't yet figured out is your point around, well, let's personalize it because dexamethasone doesn't work for everyone. It, it saves one third of the lives. But what about the other two thirds? Maybe um, ruxolitinib is better for those two thirds. And so we're now, we now have gotten a pretty good sense for where you are in timing, but the next frontier is to figure out not just where are you in timing, but, but where are you or where, are, or are, where am I in timing? I guess I have a question sort of about sort of, I guess, procedures is that um, are, are, is, are doctors just allowed to, if, if, if a drug's been approved by the FDA for some particular disease or use, are doctors allowed to basically use it in other scenarios without kind of an additional randomized controlled trial? If a randomized controlled trial is needed, how big of, you know, can one be can one be kind of initialized if it is only a small subset of the population that would potentially benefit from it? Like if this particular drug is only useful for people over the age of 75 or something like that, is that enough of a population for a randomized control trial to actually kind of go forward? Shane, it's a great question. And I'm literally alive because of the answer. So as I mentioned <laughs> earlier, I was um, a medical student when I became critically ill with a disease called Castleman disease. I nearly died five times from multi-organ failure, my, my immune system killing me. But after the fifth time, I identified a drug called serolimus that's been around for decades. It had never been used before for Castleman's. It, will, it was not approved for Castleman's, but based on the research I did in the lab, I thought it could maybe save my life. I actually was a business school student at Warden at the time, and I thought I could save my life and ended up testing it on myself. And I recently crossed seven and a half years in remission on this drug. So this concept of it's called drug repurposing is something that's 
I think come to light because of COVID, but actually any drug that's approved by the FDA for, for any condition can be prescribed by a doctor for any other condition that that doctor wants to prescribe it for. It's called off-label drug use. And so for me, as I was literally dying and approaching death over and over and over again, I knew my only chance of survival would be to find an old drug that could be used in a new way. I couldn't develop a new drug you know, in a decade with a billion dollars. And that's where we were with the pandemic. And as Adi knows very well, that's where I want us to build upon the, the, the potential silver linings of this awful pandemic. And I think one of those could be the fact that off-label drug use has become rampant for better or for worse. There have been drugs that have been utilized that have since subsequently been determined to not be effective. Um, but I think it's a first step. And then to your point, we then need to figure out the right incentives so that we can actually do the randomized controlled trials to prove that they actually work or don't work. So people aren't just you know, being given anything at any time. Uh, uh, David, I have two questions. Uh, first has to do with um, a treatment that's actually not an off-label one, um, but it seemed to be very successful. It's the monoclonal antibodies, uh, which was created especially for COVID. And I wanted to know about it because when they were becoming online, uh, they were very hard to get. Um, so unless you were older than a certain age and unless you had the right connections, they were almost impossible to get. And it seemed to be a treatment that should be given very early and they weren't giving it. And then, of course, the COVID seemed to go away and uh, now it's come back. So where are we with this monoclonal antibodies? Would they work for a vaccinated person? Or are they only for unvaccinated people? Um, and are they easier to get now? And, and how do they hold up in the treatment uh, kind of panoply or protocol, a, if you will? It's a great question because I forgot to mention them when I talked about <laughs> those drugs. I, I should have early on. If you are recently diagnosed um, with COVID, that should really be one of the first things that you reach for because these monoclonal antibodies are so, so effective. And so I apologize to the listeners for, <laughs> okay. for leaving that out, but you're absolutely right. But the challenge is it's an infusion. And so what happens if you're newly diagnosed with COVID? Well, what you do is you usually go into quarantine at home and you usually don't go anywhere and you're afraid to go anywhere. In order to get this infusion, you need to go to a hospital or to an infusion suite to now get this infusion. And so you're right, a lot of people are not utilizing it and it's most effective if given early. So if all, so a lot of people will say, I'll just wait to see how I feel in a few days. Five days later, they're ready for the monoclonal antibody, but they're already really, really sick and they should have gotten it three days sooner. And so I think a big part of this is marketing and, and getting the word out. And, and actually what's challenging is that these monoclonals have not received full approval by the FDA. They have an emergency use authorization which there's very challenging. It's not clear legally if you aren't yet approved, you're allowed to market. If it's just an EUA, are you actually allowed to market? So the company Regeneron has been really afraid to do any sort of marketing because they're worried that might be illegal. But I think they're now finally moving into the world of marketing. You might see some ads on TV for it. So, so David, does that mean that uh, I'm, you know, in my early 50s? Uh, if I do get uh, COVID and, and, I, and, it's, and I don't feel bad because, you know, early on, could I go out and find an infusion center? Will they give it to me or are they going to turn me away since I'm not 60 or whatever it is? It depends on, um, so one part of it is age. The other part is your risk, which is a bit of a soft call on how, how high risk you are or how low risk you are. And it mm -hmm. partly depends on, on the access that that hospital or infusion suite has to the drug. So if they've got, if they're not down to their last dose, they should give it to you, frankly. Um, if they're down to their last dose, they might try to have some sort of um, you know, decision around, well, what if someone comes in at 70 years old later on today, we won't have a dose for them. Um, but I, I personally believe, and, and 
anyone that I know that gets COVID, the first thing I do is, is see, can we get that person a monoclonal antibody infusion? And then I talked about the kind of pathway, budesonide, fluvoxamine, remdesivir, dexamethasone, tocilizumab, heparin. And, and if you get those at the right time, you massively reduce your risk of death. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. I'm here with my co-host, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner, Professor of Statistics, Shane Jensen. We're talking to David Fagenbaum. David's Assistant Professor of Medicine and Translational Medicine and Human Genetics here at the University of Pennsylvania. He also has other important titles, but he's also the author of a national best-selling book, Chasing My Career, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. David, I have a couple questions for you. Um, do you ever see a day where I worked on this as an early assistant professor in the medical arena where you would actually provide doctors, let's call it an AI system where, you know, Eric Bradlow comes in with a certain set of symptoms, you know, uh, when let's say he tested positive for COVID and now all of a sudden you're given a, all right, now it's the time to give him this. Then two days later, give him this. Is that available today? Like, or, or is it like stuck in your brain, but like there's tens of thousands of doctors around the, around the world. It would be great if they knew this as well. It's an important question, and it, it is partly stuck in my brain and other people's brains and also on this website, cdcn.org slash corona. And so that is our place where we try to put everything in our brains and, and the cumulative brains of all everyone in the world in one central place. So through the Corona Project, we've actually reviewed over 29,000 papers to pull all the data into one place. And so we always say, you know, you can either go out and read 29,000 papers or you can just come to our data set and, and, and get that information in a synthesized way. Now, the things that I mentioned, so fluvoxamine and inhaled budesonide, the initial large or the initial small clinical trials showed a pretty strong benefit months ago, and many of us got very excited about it, but it's only in the last two weeks that the two large clinical trials have been completed that show a very clear and substantial benefit. And so one of them, I think, is about to be published. The other one is, is coming kind of around the bend. And so these are a lot of people listening will probably say, what's this OCD drug and what inhaled budesonide? What are you talking about? But in the next couple of weeks, those are going to be, you know, really big hits in the news because there are things you can give to people early. It's an inhaler for budesonide and it's a pill for fluvoxamine. You can give them early and they seem to be very clearly effective. Before I turn it back over to Adi, I know he's got lots more questions. I want to, I want to ask you a question I've always wanted to ask, and I don't know I've asked any of our experts this yet. Why don't, like, I remember, you know, in the 80s, I was a teenager, but I remember when HIV first came out, and then they developed eventually a cocktail, this idea that mixing multiple drugs, not mixing, but taking multiple drugs together would be better. Are we going to get to that place for COVID? Like, I've always wondered, I took, I took, I don't mind telling everyone, our listeners, no, I had two shots of Pfizer. Would I have been better getting one Pfizer, one Moderna? Or now that I had two Pfizer, would I be better getting Moderna as my third shot, which apparently I'm all, we're all going to be getting in eight months? Or should I, you know, um, if you mentioned like, I don't remember the names, but drug A or drug B, why can't I take drug A and drug B? Why not make this virus try to go through an obstacle course of all of these drugs at once? Why use just one? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and what's so fascinating about the drugs that I mentioned just now, only one of those drugs actually has any effect on the virus at all. The other drugs I mentioned are all targeted at modulating your immune response to the virus. So the reason that this virus causes so many problems is twofold. One is that it's able to evade the immune system for between five and 14 days. So you get infected with COVID, 
you don't show any symptoms for five to 14 days because the virus is completely evading it. It is, the immune system doesn't even know it's there and it's replicating at really high numbers. So that's one problem because by, by the time you show symptoms, you've now sh shared it with 17 people, right? The second problem is that once your immune system recognizes it, it goes into overdrive because it's now been behind the eight ball for five to 14 days. It goes into overdrive and in an attempt to eliminate the virus, it actually causes incredible collateral damage. It's what's called a cytokine storm. It's where the immune system does more harm than good. And so these drugs that I talked about, tocilizumab, dexamethasone, fluvoxamine, budesonide, they actually suppress the immune response. And so the problem is, is you need to suppress it in the right way at the right time. Because if you suppress it too much, <laughs> then you're going to cause big problems. And now your immune system can't control the virus. And so it's tough because you almost want to boost the immune response early. You want the right one at the right time. And then you want to suppress it if it's too late. And so for those reasons, you can't combine them all at once and you can't, you know, take them, you know, all at one time or another. It's really about that nuance of the immune response, which is, which is really what my, my lab and my center has been studying for the last decade. So David, there's, there's a, uh, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the fluoxamine, which was something that's been studied for a bit. Uh, I know that uh, I've talked about it in our show. I, when my, my sister got COVID, um, there was nothing they were doing. And so I called her up. I said, go get the, in the trial. It was a clinical trial. And, and actually, I'll tell you what ended up happening. She, she did, a, you know, she, she recovered and uh, she bit it the last day to see whether it was the real thing or not. Um, and it didn't taste like anything. So she thought she had the placebo. Um, <laughs> but who, who knows? Um, but one of the things I, I noticed about the fluoxamine, there hasn't been that many trials of it. Um, and it's because it's so expensive to run a, a clinical trial. And when you're look, talking, talking about a but something that has to be given early. I mean, one of the one of the difficulties in studying COVID is that the vast numbers of majority of people, it's like 95%, particularly when you're looking at people who aren't, you know, who are going to be part of a trial, they can't be very, very sick. You don't, you don't include those people in trials. Yeah. Um, most of them are going to do fine anyway. So you're looking at what we call in statistics, a power problem. How do you measure a small effect size if you can't get a large number of people enrolled, and it's very, very hard to get a large number yes. of people enrolled. So these studies that, that you just, the two drugs you mentioned, how big were their trials and, uh, and how expensive were they? And are there any others that are, you know, can you be repeat them on other drugs? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And you're exactly right. People often say, well, you know, why don't we have any early drugs in outpatient setting? And it's not necessarily that this virus is more challenging than other viruses at determining these outpatient drugs. It's in part because it's so expensive and takes so much time to do these large sort of trials. So um, the first indications for both fluvoxamine and inhaled budesonide, the one for fluvoxamine came from an 80 patient trial that was done at WashU in St. Louis. So it was yeah. a small study. These were patients that were high risk of going um, uh, into the hospital. So they were older, had comorbidities. So they kind of stacked the deck in favor by looking at high risk individuals. The inhaled budesonide was done in the UK, where as you know, the UK, because it has a nationalized health system, they can run clinical trials really easily. I mean, it's like plug and play. They can randomize people to different treatments and they don't even have to build a system for it. They just enter the data into their medical record system and you learn from it, which you probably think about that and say, well, that just seems easy. We should be able to do that here in the US. Unfortunately, we can't do it that easily. But for fluvoxamine to, to replicate this in a bit larger sample size, this really impressive researcher in Vancouver recognized what you did. And that's that it's really expensive to do these trials in either the US or Canada or many other places, 
he set up a huge study that primarily enrolls patients in Brazil and other parts of the, of the world where it's less expensive to do trials like this, where doctors are less expensive, clinical research coordinators cost less. And he's set up this huge network where he's been able to study a number of drugs, including fluvoxamine in other parts of the world. Um, and, and, and so that's really what's substantiating this fluvoxamine data. So, so can I, let me follow yeah, up. Please that go ahead. Audie. I read that study. It's not even out yet. I think it, I just saw, I saw an early, um, one of the things, so there's another drug I was going to ask you about, which is ivermectin, which has been studied in small trials sort of all over the world. Um, and it's gotten a lot of hype. Some, some of the results look really good. He studied this one as well. And he only showed a, a, a modest benefit that wasn't statistically significantly different from nothing. But because the sample sizes are so small, you get large, large variance in your uncertainty. So I actually did a back of the envelope calculation and found that ivermectin was not statistically significantly different than fluoxamine but just was, was a little sandwich. Um, if you take uh, the uh, null effect, then you had ivermectin, not statistically different from null. Fluoxamine, statistically significant from no, but null, but not statistically significant from ivermectin. So you're wow. staring, looking at this, and you're going, I don't even know what to do with it because the, you're looking at uh, 700 patients and getting about 70 people getting sick, 70 to 100, which means none of these drugs, by the way, are cures. We're talking wow. about uh, efficacy, um, uh, improvements of, of 30% to something of well, that that's, nature. That's what I, let me just build on Adi's question also. Mm-hmm. That was in your answer to Adi's question about that. I also would love you to say, what are the effect sizes? Because I'm known as the effect mm-hmm. size guy on this show. We know that vaccines, that you know, they came out with these numbers, 94%, 95%, et cetera. How much, what is the effect size of these treatments along the way? But as you're answering Adi's question, it'd be great to hear what effect sizes in these, yeah. um, not preventative things, but actually things once you get it. It's a great question. So the fact that some of these p-values are close to 0.05 um, and uh, and they have sample sizes of 700 or 1,000, you can imagine that they're not huge effect sizes. So we're talking anywhere between 15 and 35% effect size. What I think should give us reason to be hopeful is that there's this cumulative effect that if you give the right drug at the right time all along the way, right. Um, and right. we should do the, we should actually do the math at some point guys. Cause, cause I think that, you know, there are these, you know, 15 to 30% reductions at each step, but you know, if you're someone who gets a monoclonal antibody early on, you get fluvoxamine, you take inhaled budesonide, you get remdesivir on admission, you get dexamethasone once you're on oxygen, you get tocilizumab when you go to the ICU. I mean, if you get that far. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Hopefully you don't get that far. Right. But, but, right. you know, we should try to actually model out what, what does that put you at? You know, are, are you at a zero? Well, well David, chance? well, since we're a statistics show, I get to ask this question as well. How independent do you think those results are? So maybe if drug one doesn't work on you very well, maybe drug two is not going to work on you well, very well either. So we could do an envelope calculation that assumes independence, but that's probably wrong. So how do you guys think about those issues? It's a good question. It's shocking that they all seem to hit this from a different angle. So the monoclonal- Wonderful. That's wonderful. That's great news. It's shocking, right? It's like we're all hitting it. Each one's hitting it from a different angle at a different timing. The the last two, the dexamethasone and the tocilizumab, are the two that, that really have similar effects, but um, it's thought that there's an additive benefit. And so we, we should do that. We should do the back of the envelope work because I, I think that that could potentially, you know, given that if you get the right drugs at the right time, you know, your relative risk is, is pretty low. So let me ask you just a few maybe last questions. Um, you know, we've seen these projections. Adi talked about it last week. I think that we see the rates starting to drop in Great Britain. You know, people talk about the Delta variant burning out 
I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's the old expression, you know, we talk about this in product adoption and marketing. If you, you can only be a first time adopter once. Now, of <laughs> course, you can get the, the COVID more than once. But I mean, are we going to eventually hit a point where the number of vaccinated people plus the number of people that have had COVID that essentially have immunity, that the Delta variant will burn itself out? And by the way, I don't mean this is a good thing because tens of thousands of more people may die in the interim. Matter of fact, we know they'll die in the interim. But is that likely to happen at some point? I think it is. Um, India is probably a good example for us to look to. Um, Of course, most people in India were unvaccinated when Delta went through India. But as you know, um, uh, about two months ago, it was it was a catastrophe in India. Um, uh, There was such high numbers of unvaccinated and Delta had really just emerged on the scene and it it wreaked havoc in a a country with a billion people, often in close quarters. you could have imagined this just continuing to get worse and worse and worse. But there was this point, and I don't think any of us know why, a point where the numbers just started to decline. Is it because when things are that bad, people completely stop interacting with other people? And they just because, of course, every, you know, every one of these pandemics, if there's a 14 day incubation period, if we all just went to our rooms for 14 days, it would stop spreading, right? Of course, but you need healthcare workers, uh, you know, to see patients who are sick. But but maybe it's that people get extra um, conservative, or maybe it's because you're truly quote unquote burning things out. You're you know you're increasing the the amount of immunity. It's really hard to know. I think you add, you bring up a great point. I think you know obviously in statistics we talk about ex ante versus ex post. If you had told everybody today, now whatever seventeen, eighteen, nineteen months since the beginning that. Back in you know April of 2020, had we all just stayed at home for 14 days or even 30 days, yeah. and in some sense that would have ended it, then people would have said that have been. I mean, if you could have guaranteed that outcome, that would have been interesting. I know Adi has a question. People yeah. still wouldn't have stayed home if even if we guaranteed it. But <laughs> well, it's nice well, it's, well, maybe not. Maybe not at the time, but maybe looking back now. But yeah, Adi, go you ahead, know, please. I just, I mean, I can remark in reaction to that in Australia, New Zealand, where they 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 basically wouldn't let it in, and now they're they're doing full lockdowns again and they don't have anything like the vaccination rates we have and they don't have the immunity because it hasn't been around. Um, my question almost is, is if enough people either get vaccinated or, or, or get COVID or some combination thereof, will COVID-19 essentially become like an endemic disease that doesn't kill many people um, and comes back yearly um, in different forms and, and we'll just end up ignoring it just like we ignore a lot of things in that sort of general category. And I think that's a, a relatively likely outcome. What is your more professional view? I totally agree with you. I think it's very likely. I think that the difference here is that um, uh, I think that it's likely going to continue to mutate. And we've already seen that from the original Wuhan strain to where we are right now, that, that there's significantly increased um, uh, contagiousness. Thankfully, the deadliness does not seem to increase, although there's some thought that maybe the Lambda maybe has more, more mortality associated with it. Who knows? But I think, um, especially because we're putting this significant um, evolutionary pressure on the virus, right? We're actually vaccinating people. So the only strains that are going to really continue to circulate are ones that can get around the vaccine to at least some extent, not completely, but at least some escape and some breakthroughs. And so I think because we're putting this evolutionary pressure, we might see the virus get worse 
worse uh, as opposed to just kind of seasonally showing up and, and then going away like we see with a lot of the, you're right a lot of these seasonal flus and viruses none of us are vaccinated against them so there isn't this evolutionary pressure for it to get quote unquote worse as time goes on it just can survive and keep showing up at, at its current state but i think the more pressure we put on it the more potential there is that it could um it could escape maybe just one last question the minute or two we have left david i wanted to ask you um just your quick thoughts on booster shots and your quick thoughts on what do we know about vaccinating people under the age of 12? Yeah, booster shots are a really important question. Um, there's very little data on this. We've actually, the FDA has just um, extended the um, EUA just based on a study of, of only about 50 people. And now it's extended for like anyone who's on any sort of immunosuppressant. So it's a, it's a big step. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's important to make decisions, um, uh, you know, with, with limited data sometimes. So I think that's fine. But I think that it's, it's hard to know. I, I fall into the category. I'm on this immunosuppressant, this drug that I mentioned that's saving my life. And I'm, I'm trying to weigh this decision about whether to, to do a booster or not. And again, it's hard to make a decision off of a clinical trial of 50 people, but um, it does seem that people that are immunosuppressed are at increased risk of, of getting Delta infection. And, and also it seems that a booster can, can decrease that risk. So I think that um, it's reasonable um, to consider, but it's one of these kind of- What's yeah. the downside just to tell us? So like what, just even if you told your personal story, which by the way, is an amazing personal story. And you know, Adi's mentioned it and brought it up and your book, but it, it, it's just with amazing respect that you've basically said, I'm going to have to solve my own problem. And it's not going to be 10 years and a billion dollars. It's going to have yeah. to be with some existing drugs. What's your concern about getting a booster shot? Like, why shouldn't I be rushing out now? I'm not going to do it, but why shouldn't I be rushing out now and just get one? Yeah, I was just chatting with a colleague today about this. And so, um, so there's a theoretical risk that there is some sort of um, uh, kind of final amount of RNA viral ex or vaccine exposure that you can have and that potentially you could approach that theoretical limit and then some new booster comes out that's specific to the Delta variant that you have now kind of hit your lifetime. We have no idea if there's like a lifetime max or if there's like a cumulative amount on a per year basis before your immune system does something that we don't know about. And and I don't want to skip. You mean you should, I know, but we, uh, you mean as a stat, you shouldn't extrapolate outside the range of data. Like we just don't know what's going to happen at four shots, five shots, you know, that's four, right. three shots within a seven month period. Who knows? That's right. And it's totally theoretical. That's why I hate to say this on the air and scare anyone because it's completely theoretical. So I don't want to scare anyone off something that's totally theoretical, but one could make an argument and say, well, you know, if there is some sort of theoretical limit to the amount of, of vaccine that I get, then maybe I should hold off until there's a better booster or maybe I should. Yeah, and that would really be the only reason to hold off. So uh, I hear last, question, last question to Professor Weiner. Yeah. So my, Pfizer has announced that they're coming out with one within a couple months. Um, basically what you're saying is we should wait for that. I'm saying that there, there are colleagues of mine um, and, and I have been considering this idea of, you know, if Delta is what we're really concerned about, then maybe waiting for a Delta booster would make more sense. But at the same time, you could end up having a lot of people have significant morbidity and mortality waiting around for some Delta booster. And so you, there is a risk of doing that as well. Yeah. 
Well, David, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We've been talking to David Fagenbaum. David is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Translational Medicine and Human Genetics at the University of Pennsylvania, founding director of the Center for Cytokine Storm Treatment and Laboratory, and Associate Director of Patient Impact at the Penn Orphan Disease Center. And of course, we strongly encourage everyone to look at his book, Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. So David, thank you for joining myself, Adi, and Shane here on Morton Moneyball. Thanks so much for having me, guys. So this has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Please... You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports and statistics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host, Professor of Statistics, Shane Jensen. Some combination of the four of the two of us, Adi Weiner and Cade Massey, are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball, uh, podcast edition. We just finished our interview with David Fagenbaum from the University of Pennsylvania Hospital System, who's been doing lots of different work on finding cures for, or not cures, but finding ways to inhibit COVID using drugs that are already existing. And of course, in our fourth quarter today, we're talking to Craig O'Shaughnessy. Uh, Craig has been literally at the forefront, a returning guest, literally at the forefront of tennis analytics. So uh, Shane, I thought, you know, since both of us are NFL fans and, uh, you know, in some sense, we have overlapping interests. We both uh, at different points have wanted Tom Brady to succeed extraordinarily well. Um, why yes, don't we at right. least, right. why don't we, why don't we start with Tom Brady and talk about that? So he's 44 now. Um, as you know, he played last season, apparently with a torn MCL, um, which he had surgery on. Um, he does. Apparently, he says he feels the best. And these people are saying he looks the best he has in 10 years. That what are the scary, odds? Right? I know. Considering so what, what are, that last ten years has entailed, but yeah. Well, it's only enti- it's only entailed four of his seven titles. Let's not give him too much credit. Um, I'm joking, of course. Um, so my question to you is: I used to think this was impossible, but like, if he wants to and he stays as dedicated, can he play until he's fifty and still be a top? Let's say at least good enough that you can win a Super Bowl with Tom Brady. Does he have five or six more good years left in him? I mean, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I think maybe an expectation, like you know, yes, he could do that, uh, or 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 you know, if he, I, I do best think case scenario, set, you mean his yeah, best case scenario, like you know, like basically what will keep him. I don't think he will do it. I don't think he'll play till fifty. Um, either by choice or 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 you'll kind of have it finished for him because one of these years there's just going to be some injury that happens you know, that knocks him out. And I think at that point, you know, it's unlikely, you know, maybe he will find the motivation to come back for some reason, you know, come back from that. But I, I think there's, you know, I mean, I'm, I don't believe that he'll fall off a cliff kind of skill wise, like, you know, kind of, for example, somebody like Peyton Manning, I guess, did. Um, or Drew Brees. We have, talked about, we Drew talked Brees. about that. Drew Brees was not the great Drew Brees the last two years. Yeah, no. And I mean, and, you know, Drew Brees had a lot of injuries that he was battling through that time. And so was Peyton Manning. So I think, you know, probably for his skills to really, uh, you know, kind of drop off a cliff, I think it would probably have to be an injury. But those types of things are it is likely that he will get something like that. And I mean, you know, I mean, I think it's in terms of his training regime and all that type of stuff. Obviously, he seems, you know, to be this great constant of the universe. But I think, you know, his constancy up until this point, as well with a mixture of like good luck, I think, has kind of made us lose the perspective that he is like any football player, only one injury away for century from retirement. And I think at his age, 
even like an injury like, you know, say, you know, some of the stuff that Drew Brees has been dealing with over the last couple of seasons, which isn't necessarily season ending, still might kind of push Brady, you know, towards hanging it up. How how do you see um, one of the topics about Brady that and one of the that the analytics has shown over the last few years, not surprisingly, he's not throwing the deep ball as much. Now, some people could say he's not as good at throwing the deep ball. The other thing is, as you know, to throw the deep ball, you got to hold on to the ball and you raise the possibility of injury. Do you see maybe that drives him out of the game in the sense that to throw the deep ball he and every quarterback, like Ben Roethlisberger doesn't throw the deep ball as much as he used to as well. Yeah. And, you know, so do you see that as being a big role in what could inhibit him or any older quarterback going forward? It's certainly possible, though. I, he still shows the ability to throw the deep ball when he needs to. It could be that his accuracy is going down on those deep balls. I mean, you know, you and I both watched a lot of Tampa Bay Buccaneers last season. He threw some very pretty deep Beautiful balls, deep balls, especially in the playoffs. But I mean, I, I so I don't think it's going to necessarily inhibit him the way say like Drew Brees' accuracy outside of kind of short yardages really seemed to drop off. Same with Peyton Manning in their late stage of their career, such that it really kind of inhibited the way they could kind of yeah, guys uh, are just playing like press like coverage. You can't, right. Guys are playing. They can't even throw the underneath ball anymore because yeah. guys are playing press coverage. Whereas I think somebody like both Big Ben and Brady, I think, still have enough of the ability to throw the deep ball, maybe not as consistently, but they have that possibility that I think it still keeps defenses honest. I don't think I, I wouldn't want to build a defensive strategy that's entirely predicated on Brady, not, you know, not kind of torching me deep. Same, same with Big Ben, I think. You know, I mean, assuming Big Ben is kind of re- continues to recover from the injury that, like, you know, uh, he had a couple seasons ago, I think Big Ben both Brady and big Ben are kind of similar in that they don't have a lot of mobility. They're not going to keep defenses honest with their legs, obviously, but I still think they can keep the defenses honest with their arm at various, you know, at both short and long distances. And that kind of prevents the defense from really stacking up against them. I think. Hey, look, it only takes three deep balls in a game. And all of a sudden you put 14 or 12, look, that pass to Scotty yeah. Miller in the Super Bowl wasn't too bad. That 40 yard strike at the end of the first half. Let me oh, ask the, you, and the NFC and uh, the NFC championship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the NFC championship game. Let me yeah. let me ask you a general question, and it's about projections in the NFL. So, as you know, obviously, there's a 17 game schedule this season, yeah. rather than 16. And then people talk about, well, now somebody might throw for 6,000 yards. We know 5,000. Matter of fact, Brady's thrown at Manning. There's been a number of people yeah. that thrown for 5,000. If you were going, and this is, I, I I really am so excited to talk to you about this statistics question. If I asked you to forecast what the maximum will be, let's say yards passing or running, would you just take the previous maximum or even average maximum and multiply by 17 over 16? Would you just do linear extrapolation by saying, well, they're playing one extra game. I'm going to add one sixteenth onto it, so I'll make it up. If someone was going to run for 1,600 yards – now it's 1,700 yards. If someone was going to throw for 4,800 yards, it's now 5,100 yards. This is simple math. You take the average and you just multiply it out. How good a projection do you think that would be? Just literally a linear projection system that takes 17 over 16 and multiplies it by whatever quantity what there was in the past. I mean, to answer that question, I'd want to probably ask, how does the linear extrapolation do um, at like the halfway point of a season extrapolating at the whole over the whole season? Because the thing is, I mean, 
I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a fan of parsimonious, simple models. So yeah, like a, a nice linear extrapolation seems like a reasonable thing to do. And I think in expectation, it probably, it would be hard to come up with something uh, better, I would think. But you, you, once you start getting like near the end of the season, obviously kind of dynamics change. Like, you know, if this is somebody like a Patrick Mahomes or like a Tom Brady, where, you know, if they really are in like the 5,000 yard range already, probably the last two games are not all that necessarily important, you know, as far as playoff positioning, maybe they get rested a couple games. And of course that throws off the projection completely, but maybe they're still competing for a buy. And so that doesn't. And so I think the, the uncertainty is sort of around at the end of the season is something that I think, unless you have a really kind of personalized, sophisticated model, probably the linear kind of extrapolation is the right thing to do. But that doesn't mean that I necessarily think that every single record is going to get broken in the next few years, you know, because usage has changed. I mean, all the passing records are probably going to continue to be broken because it's becoming more and more of a passing league. And so for wide receivers and quarterbacks, that's probably a good pace. But like, I mean, some of those old running back records, even adding an extra game won't necessarily mean that we're going well that to was see the record i was going to ask you is of- someone is someone going to break is it eric dickerson's record which is i think 2103 or something 2105 somewhere in that neighborhood eric dickerson still has the yeah. record i think it's 2105 because i think people have broken 2000 but no one's gotten over 2100 matt can type yeah, in i think, I think peterson was maybe the last one to come really close i can't remember he did exactly he was like who, in, yeah. in the over 2000 range but that yeah. one as you're pointing out analytics may prevent it like who's going to get no, the ball exactly you should right. run I mean, the ball I, who's going to run the ball that much i think the game has changed to the extent that like even teams that like you know even if a team suddenly if you suddenly plop like you know prime time brett barry sanders onto a roster it's unlikely he would get the kind of opportunities um that that you know kind of that right recent running backs have now like something like running back all purpose yards where you can kind of oh. factor in like passing game and stuff like that as well i mean i think the role for the it's not like the running back as a role is going away but role it, it is changing and certainly becoming less of that just sort of straight ahead first down running kind of game that it was in years past when you know eric dickerson was setting that when eric dickerson set that and, record and by the way credit to me i was correct it is 2105 yards um derrick henry last year ran for 2027 I think you and I would oh, both okay. agree. If there's a guy that could do yep. it, it could yep. very well be Derrick Henry. No, and I didn't realize that Derrick Henry essentially got within a relatively reasonable game of, you know, like if Derrick Henry had had that 17th game last season, I could have seen him going, making that, breaking that. So that could fall as well. I, I do think that in general running back records, certainly the kind of cumulative totals, that kind of records that we've seen, I don't think are going to get touched even with this sort of, sort of extension to the 17 game season. How much do you think, like if you were, whether you're the Buccaneers and Brady, whether you're the Steelers and Roethlisberger, you're the Packers and Aaron Rodgers. I'm talking about the veteran, this, the real, yeah. real veteran quarterbacks. How many games would you even target them to play? Would you like, we've always talked about this versus rest. Obviously there's a yeah. bye week, but in some sense, I'm making this up. I, I, I could look, Let, I, let's say the Buccaneers have week 12 or it's the bye week or 13, whatever the number is. Would you rest Brady week six in some sense, break the season up into thirds, give him a, you know, why not give him two bye weeks? And now yeah. he's got two, two week breaks during the season. And that might, you know, we've always, we joked about this when it happened. The flake gate may have been the best thing that ever happened to Tom Brady. Wait, you mean he didn't have to play four five, six games at the beginning of the season? So what? Who cares? Matter of fact, better Tom Brady at the end of the season. How much do you think teams will intentionally, 
quote unquote, because, you know, maybe the NFL will start finding yeah. people like the NBA. But how many t- times do you think teams will intentionally rest players and not play them the 17? I mean, I, I think it's I mean, I, I think the issue of load management that we kind of can take away from basketball is a very it's a great one. I think, you know, even with now extending it to 17 games, each game is just too important in the NFL season that I mean, certainly I think, you know, some of the you know, you know, in games where you're ahead by like, you know, 20 at the half or something like that. I mean, I think, you know, your, your uh, premier quarterback could get sat even more often in situations like that. But it's, I mean, as much as, you know, I'm, I'm sure Brady wouldn't mind the kind of time off, especially like a third of the way through the season, kind of the second buy, you know, you'd have to pick, it'd have to be pretty careful to pick a game that you didn't think was going to a, that his absence wasn't going to be critical and right. B, that that game wasn't the success in that game wasn't kind of critical or at least, you know, important to the season. I it's, wonder, you know, it's very interesting. I wonder if the NFL, when they decided to make there only be one buy, as you remember, now there's an extra wild card team, but only one buy. Yeah. Now, I mean, if I told you you could have arrested Brady or you could have the one seed in one less game, it's, it's not even a question. You'd rather have one less game. No, and that's why it's kind of like, you know, coming back to what we were talking about before with these, some of these like kind of the, you know, whether or not quarterback, you know, your kind of premier quarterback is going to be going for a record in like, you know, the last game of the season. That It's only really in the last couple of games of the season where teams even start trying to get strategic because at least then they really, you know, like by game six, there's no way of predicting whether or not that particular game will be important to your playoff seating or your playoff chances or anything like that it's only really in these situations like I think KC you know last year even they, I think they rested Mahomes they lost that extra game at the end yeah because uh, it really did not matter at all to their standings but that's a kind of a unique you know sort of like position to be in almost every team goes into the final couple of weeks at least having seating you know that matters to them well while we're still on the NFL uh, we'll play our favorite game which is Let's take the top teams of the field. So I just looked at the Super Bowl odds today. Uh, maybe surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly, the Kansas City Chiefs are the favorite to win the Super Bowl. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. They're at 19%. The Bucks are at 15%. But if I took the top four teams, not surprisingly, I think you'd agree with these as the top four a priori, the Chiefs, the Bucks, the Bills, and the Packers. Those are the four teams. They're the top four teams last year. Yep. Well, there we go. That's 50%. So I, Shane Jensen, we're here on Morton Moneyball in front of millions of listeners worldwide. I'm going to give you the Chiefs, the Bucks, the Bills, or the Packers, or the field. Which of them are you going to, to win take? The Super Bowl to win the Super Bowl. Win the Super Bowl. The Chiefs. You get the Chiefs, Bucks, Bills, or Packers. So two each at least. Two yeah. AFC, two NFC, or you can have the field. Which one are you taking? I think I'd have to take those four. I think I'd take those four rather than the field. It's so hard to make an argument. Um, against like, you know, Buffalo and Kansas City sucking up at least 50% of that probability over in the AFC. I mean, I, I can, I can, I can, I can come up with a list and both the NFC and AFC of, of, of teams that could break through. Well, you could come up, but the does, Ravens could, the Browns gave the Chiefs the Browns, all they could the handle. Ravens, the Titans Steelers are always still be good. The Steelers will be back in the NFC. The Cowboys will probably be much approved. You know, um, the whole NFC uh, West, that entire that entire NFC West is really stacked. Yeah, no, exactly. San Francisco and and, uh, the L.A. Rams will probably both be much improved. Um, So, I I mean, I could see a a, a team punching through, but I still I I think in my mind, at least it's hard for me to give a, a 
one of those teams punching through the same probability I would give just sort of one of the kind of these, these top four teams from last year. Cause it also, I mean, you know, a lot of, you, you know, the thing that maybe would make this calculation, both KC and, and, and um, Tampa Bay were able to, I think to an impressive degree, hold their teams together. I mean, Tampa Bay, usually 100%. When a team, when a team wins, win, wins the Super Bowl, there's often kind of a drop off among both the Super Bowl and the loser of the Super Bowl. Um, you know, but they've been able to kind of keep both their coaching staffs and sort of, per, you know, actual players together. I, you know, I also don't think Casey, I mean, you know, they, they, they say that the loser of the kind of, you know, the Super Bowl often has this kind of, you know, bad season the next year after I, I, I would be shocked if that happened. I, yeah, I would be. They I would be sh- so stacked. Yeah, I would be shocked. I would normally say also there's the possibility of injury, but of course yeah. you're giving me four teams. I mean, all, I mean, yeah, could it possibly Mahomes, yeah. Brady, Rosen, and Rodgers, could they all get injured? Not not Rosen, uh, Allen, sorry. Allen yeah. and uh, – could they all get injured? I guess that's possible. But, I mean, they're not all getting injured. I mean, what no. a couple of those teams are going to be healthy and standing at the end. So I agree with you. I, I think I would take those four. I think also since we're, we were talking with uh, David Feigenbaum about COVID, I thought um, in the last minute before our break, I thought I'd mention to you something I don't know if you saw today, but – Two things happened in football relating to COVID and football. First, the Falcons are the first team that are 100% vaccinated, which was very Amazing. neat and interesting to see. Yeah, and second, go Falcons. Yeah, go Falcons. And second thing, the Raiders did something very interesting. I hope every NFL franchise does this. They're requiring you to be vaccinated to get into Allegiant Stadium this year. Or if you're not vaccinated, get this. They'll give you the shot right at the door. And make you wear a mask. But to get in, they'll, they're trying to encourage their fans to get yeah. shots. So you can get a shot and wear a mask and go in or be vaccinated. I just can thought it was a, not, And you can't choose to not get the shot, but still just wear a mask inside. That's a good question. I think the answer was no. Yeah. I thought you, you either had to be vaccinated or get the vaccine and no, I mean, that's a, going I, in. I mean, honestly, that's a, I mean, you know, I, I, I didn't need such an incentive to get the vaccine myself, but I mean, if, if we, if we can get people out to games and get them vaccinated at the same time, what a win-win. So this has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. Please stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio. Welcome back to the third quarter here on Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I'm here with my co-host, professor of statistics, Shane Jensen. Some combination between us, professor of statistics, Adi Weiner, practice professor of OID, Kate Massey, are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball, Sirius XM 132, the a podcast edition we've been doing over the last 19 months of COVID. Uh, during the first quarter of our show, we were fortunate enough to talk to Assistant Professor of Medicine David Feigenbaum, who talked to us about using existing drugs not to prevent COVID, which the vaccine has been getting a lot of the press, but actually what to do once you have it. Uh, obviously, in the second quarter, Shane and I have been talking open sports, which we'll do in this quarter as well. In the last quarter of the show, we're going to talk to Craig O'Shaughnessy, who is the pioneer on analytics and sports. And we're obviously going to talk to him since he worked with Novak Djokovic. We'll talk to him about the upcoming U.S. Open and, you know, kind of how historically great a season this has been. So, Shane, we spent quarter two talking about NFL, but of course we're in the middle of a huge baseball season right now. We're pretty much three quarters of the way through the season. Each team has in the 40-ish kind of games left. So I wanted to bring some topics up to you just to get your reaction to it. So let's start with the guy who's you know gotten the most press this year, which is Showtime, Shohei Otani. 
Um, he's obviously been great at pitching this year, but I want to focus on his home runs. So he's currently leading the league with 39 home runs, and he's got 42 games to go. So, you know, to hit 50 home runs, you basically have to hit a third of a home run every game. That would get you to 54. Um, if he hits a third of the home run every game for the remaining games, he'll get to 53. Do you think he gets to 50 home runs? Or do you think the Angels being kind of out of it, they start to rest him more at the end because he's had a heavy load this season? Um, what's your prediction? And given he's got a, I think it's a three home run lead or four, I think the next person either has 35 or 36. Is he going to be the leader in home runs? And does he get to 50? Those are two obviously separate questions. I think he probably does not. I mean, he's already kind of slowing down, right? So, I mean, like that, 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 that one third of per of a home run per game is 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 higher than at least his current like last month of pace. I think. absolutely. Um, and I do think that the Angels probably will sort of, uh, you know, I, th- I think he's kind of a unique player, obviously, because he's got this pitching component. So I probably things like rest and stuff like that and off days are going to be even more important to him than like just an everyday hitter that you could just kind of have, you know, his rest day could just be DHing or something like that. They have the ability to do that as well. But I do think he'll probably they'll do some, you know, kind of load management just to make sure that he doesn't, you know, hurt himself, uh, you know, going into the offseason. Um, it does, again. You know, I, I guess I, I shouldn't slam the Angels as as an organization or anything like that. But it is it makes me so sad that like, you know, because he's lingering on this kind of mediocre team that's not going to be in contention that seemingly despite having maybe two of the best players in baseball just cannot get themselves into playoff contention year in, year out. It, 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 it seems wasteful. It, it, it seems kind of sad to me that we don't get to see Shohei Otani kind of, you know, make this kind of like keep building momentum towards the playoffs, maybe try and make a run at the end of the season, et cetera. We're going to be somewhat deprived of that just by, you know, where, where he is. Uh, but I do think that that is going to be the case. I don't think he's going to, I think he'll probably continue to sort of fade out of contention for that 50 home runs. And at some point, probably he'll just kind of like, you know, not get shut down, but, you know, we'll get less opportunities because they'll be looking at September call-ups like every other non-playoff team. Given what you've seen so far, you know, do you think it's sustainable? Like he's 27, I think. He's not 21. He's 27, I think. Would you, if you were the general manager of the Angels, would you have him continue for the next five years to both pitch and hit? And if the answer is no, which of the two would you have him do? I probably would. I mean, you know, you're paying him this much. You know, you've already agreed to a salary. Might as well get as much. I mean, I, I... You know, I mean, I think I would want to talk to medical personnel about like, you know, like kind of like I want him to at least make it to the end of the contract and try and provide as much value as possible. And I think conditional on him making it to the end of the contract, he provides much greater value playing both positions, both pitcher. I mean, he adds like, you know, a cup, you know, two or three war each for those two different kind of roles that he takes on. And so his value definitely would be in both hitting and both continuing to hit and continue to pitch. It's really, they'll have, they have to at some point make a calculation about whether or not that's going to start increasing the you know, probability of an injury that keeps him out of both roles for an extended yeah, That's what, of, of course, time. I'm worried about. 
And, and of course, you know, he's still, yeah, I mean, he's, you say he's like 27 now. Is that right? I think that's that. So, I mean, like, you know, if I'm the next team signing him, whether that's the angels giving him an extension or whether that's him being signed as a free agent on some other team, that team, I think will probably be signing him. Well, it'll be unclear whether he will get a salary commiserate with both roles, like a new, you know, a new extension, a new salary, or whether whatever new team, the next team along will continue, will want him to kind of take on both roles. Cause as he ages, that's only going to increase probably the probability of, of that dual role kind of, you know, leading to some kind of injury. I don't even know how Babe Ruth, how old Babe Ruth was when they transitioned away from pitching. I think, um, but... I think Babe Ruth was born in 1895. And I think <laughs> yes, the I mean, last, I mean, it's not, think, not, not the best comparisons modern medicine-wise anyway, but... I think it was, because I think Babe Ruth died yeah. in 1948 at the age of 53. I think Babe Ruth was probably... I think the last time he really pitched was with the Red Sox, which would have been really in 16 or 17 on a regular yeah. basis. So he would have been in his tw- early 20s, uh, certainly younger than yeah. Shohei is now, because by the time yeah. Ruth was 27, I think that was 1922 Ruth was on the Yankees and, you know, he had already had his 1920 season and everything like that. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think, I I think probably the angels, I, I I think the angels, whatever team signs him next, or if his career kind of continues beyond this, this kind of quote unquote rookie contract or whatever he's on right now. um, I I think that will be a point which he'll probably transition only into the single role. So let me say another stat. I like to look through the stats just to say, I didn't just look at, home runs and see that Shohei was leading with 39. Another number really shocked me. But before I tell you the number, it's related to this number. Before I tell you the number, if I asked you for, and just our listeners on Wharton Moneyball are going to have to stay with me here, the average maximum number of wins in a season. And what I mean by that is, let's say we took the last 50 seasons since they raised the mound. We took the maximum number of wins a pitcher had in a season. And we took a histogram of that and we took the average of those numbers. So the average maximum, what do you think? I don't know the number, by the way, but what do you think that number would be? What do you think the typical average number of maximum wins for a pitcher in a season is? Well, that I, I would definitely want a moving average of that because that I think has changed appreciably over the course of like the last. Let's say we years took the ten last twenty years. What do you think In the, the last average twenty years? I think the uh, uh, the expect kind of the, the expected value for the max maximum season would be yep. something like eighteen. Yeah, and that's what I, I'm, I'm. I'm sure we'll one of our listeners. By the way, one of our listeners yeah. want to uh, tweet us that number. You can do that at W Moneyball, and we we always answer there. Or you can send us an email at moneyball at wharton I would guess. Yeah, I mean, the number a twenty eight. win seasons still do happen. I think have happened in the last five six years. There's still been a twenty win yes. season, but it's pretty rare. I mean, it certainly does not usually make it. We don't usually make it to twenty wins, and we're not we're not even where close this. Well, year, I'm, right? I'm about to. That's what I'm about to get to. So, yeah. with let's say seven or eight starts left for each pitcher, the maximum right now is thirteen. Mm. Yep. Now, yeah, we may end up where the maximum is fifteen or sixteen. And that seems to me to be quite low for a maximum. And part of that can be pitchers aren't pitching as long. Part of it could be injuries. Uh, I, I don't know. But I, both does that number that we're at 13 with basically 120 games played, uh, played surprise you? Um, and would also, let me ask you another question, just back to our linear extrapolation. Let's say three quarters of the season is gone right now. 
Should I just extrapolate the maximum to be one quarter more? So a quarter of 13 is 3.25. The expected maximum is somewhere between 16 and 17 right now. How do you like that linear extrapolation for that? And it, it probably sounds about right. That's probably where we're headed. Yeah, it, it, it does, because I, I think load management and baseball is already kind of built in, especially for pitchers. Load, You know, their entire schedule is around load management, right? I mean, yes, it's certainly the case that like, you know, for example, I, I don't know who this person at 13 is. It's probably Bueller or somebody like that at uh, on right. LA or, or whoever, um, you know, chances are that whoever that pitcher is probably on a, you, you know, the ones that I can kind of think of they're on contending teams. So they'll still want their services like near the end of the season. Um, but they might skip a start here or there to kind of depending on the scheduling and stuff like that and how the playoffs are kind of lining up. But in baseball, of course, like any one game, like one skip start by a pitcher, isn't going to make a huge difference to their kind of linear extrapolation. I think the, yeah, the stochasticity of like wins and, you know, getting a win or making it to five innings in a particular game. The reason that these totals are so low in general is because, you know, kind of starting pitching now, like that kind of win stat is in, is it's extra chancy. You know, right, just to let you know, the, t- the top two pitchers, each with 13 wins is Kyle Hendricks of the Cubs and Julio Urias of the Dodgers. So they yeah. both have Who's on the IL right now, I think actually. So he's, all right. He's so, all up. right. Well, you know, um, and yeah. of course, Bueller, by the way, is there as well. Bueller's got 12, but yeah. you know, a send, well, you can do math. I said 120 games. What do you think the maximum number of games played for these starters are? What a shock. 120 divided by five, 24. The yeah. guys that haven't gotten injured have probably seven or eight more starts. They appear to be winning half of their starts. So that gets us to three or four more wins. So we're talking, we could end up with 15, 16 as being yeah. the maximum. That just surprised me. And maybe, well, and by I the mean, way- like, you know, again, it, relative to historical standards where the pitcher was kind of in there for like seven, eight innings for better, you know, the team just had a heart, like a greater chance of like, finally getting a lead for that pitcher. I mean, per Jacob deGrom, who like, you know, basically pitches like five or six innings of complete shutout baseball, but he's still, you know, to get that win, he still needs the Mets to score a run or two to give him some support. And I, you know, it, it, it just sort of, there's a lot of kind of randomness in there. So I think, I mean, it's what what's really going to, you know, we're already noticing this and kind of the number of wins per season in pitchers, but we're going to really start, seeing this in the number of wins per career of pitchers, the hall of fame kind of standards. Well, that's what I was going to ask you up with. I mean, how are we going to evaluate pitchers for the hall of fame in like 20 years? I mean, it's certainly, I mean, wins were always kind of a weird stat to kind of use overly focus on, but you know, there's not going to be a, you know, I think it was, I was looking at this recently. I think, you know, there's only like, you know, one or two pitchers, right now that have any kind of chance and even so i wouldn't bet on them of getting anywhere near 300 wins. oh no you know, they're not getting to 300 no or even 250 i think even 250 even yeah. 250 is not granky zach granky could yep uh clayton yep. kershaw could um i can't even remember how far cc got because cc was one that actually had an amazing number of wins for a modern day kind of pitcher but i mean you know, these kind of standards of like, you know, like the, 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 the wave of like, you know, Maddox and Glavin and Clemens. CC got to two, 251, by the way, yeah. and 3,093 strikeouts. Honestly, so by the way, two, that might be as great yeah. as we'll ever see in the next yeah, no, 30 250, years. 251 in the, in the era that he pitched in would be like 350, I think, in like most historical errors in baseball. Incredibly well, let me give impressive. you, let me give you some other numbers. So right now, let's assuming we're doing our three-quarter, one-quarter model, where three-quarters of the season's over, they've got one quarter to go. 
What do you think is the expected maximum for the number of maximum number of hits in a season? So you will always know the number 200. You had a 200 hit season. What do you think right now? What do you think the average maximum number of hits in a season is? I don't know hits as well as wins, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I would say, I don't know, like 175, something like that. Is that too low? I don't know. Maybe it is, but you're right. Yeah. This season, it's probably going to be somewhere in the 175, 180 range. It's not okay, going to yeah, be, yeah. it's not going to be higher than that. And that's yeah. to me, again, seems to be, maybe I've got this wrong, but seems to me to be a little bit low. Maybe, maybe. In well, your- I mean, certainly, I mean, you look and we are at, you know, kind of in terms of batting, you know, kind of overall league batting average and stuff like that. I think we are at kind of, yeah, I mean, we're certainly at a rel- relatively low point here. Um, you know, so no, I, I, I guess I'm not particularly surprised. What's what's Ichiro's record again? Didn't he, he broke the record. It was like two. Yeah. Ichiro hit 200 and I'm going to guess, but I know the old record was, I think 258. I think Ichiro hit 261 or 262. I didn't realize the record was that high. So maybe oh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I should have yeah. pushed the average closer to 200. Then the average might have, like the record old record was, I think 257. I think Ichiro yeah. got to 261 or 262, but we're not going to have a guy more than about 180 this year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, it, it's, it's partly because pitching is just so overpowered right now overall. But I also do think that the game, you know, at least among a lot of the kind of teams I watch a lot, like, I guess, the New York Yankees and some of these other kind of like bashing to, you know, kind of strikeout or home run type teams. I mean, the hitting record is typically, I think the people getting those max hits are more kind of the style of somebody like Ichiro. You know, it's like the lead off. It's typically kind of like more the lead off kind of get on base sort of role that you know unless we recalibrated for obp instead of batting average like unless we you know uh, you know I, I could imagine the hits plus walks kind of stat if we yep. gave that a cooler name that that would be something that wasn't kind of changing dramatically over time but i think hits in general are change you know again are are kind of decreasing as a, at least you know in the last few years well now that you mention it so you're right the maximum obp this year is still not that high historically i don't think it's 437 there are yeah. four players above 400 which that's for obp and yeah. just to let you know for ops there are two players above one one is vlad guerrero and the other one's shohei yeah so and those Votto at like 1.2 in the last month or something like that 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 I don't know if you've been paying attention to all what Joey Votto's been doing like the last couple of months, but that guy's back from, well, certainly back from obscurity. Definitely. Yep, absolutely. So just continuing on with our uh, questions here about uh, baseball. Um, the other thing that shocked me was, and I think I brought this up in a few weeks ago, was that we only have one player that's hitting above 330, and that's Brantley. So does that surprise you that we may have a batting champion somewhere around 320 or 310, somewhere around there? I mean, a major, the whole league. Yeah, I mean, that does, again, seem low. But, I mean, I, I guess it's not, you know, I, I mean, all these things are kind of correlated sort of together with this rise in kind of like, you know, like the the – the, the rise of the two inning super pitcher or something like that. I don't know what you want to call this uh, dynamic, but like, I think it's, it's driving pitch, you know, all the kind of hitting stats mostly down. And I think, I, I think it's partly that just kind of overall pitching being so overpowered right now, but I think it also, the style of the hitting game has evolved, you know, 
more towards these kind of like, you know, like kind of big, you know, swing for the fences sort of, or take a lot of walks kind of, you know, hitters and less of these like try and like, you know, I mean, shifting and stuff like that has kind of taken a little bit of, of, of the, the, the kind of get on base at all costs kind of roll out of things, you know, the kind of opposite field sort of hitter type thing that, I mean, you know, each row had that advantage where, I mean, he could bunt it and be halfway to first before like, you know, people, right. hit, the ball hit the ground. So the other thing I wanted to wrap up our discussion of baseball on is how good do you think the projections have been this year? Like, for example, right now we have, the uh, you know, actually the team I just noticed, the team, well, we can start with the following, the team with the best record in baseball, which I'm sure you know, it's the San Francisco Giants. I know that. That was not, I don't think anybody saw that coming. I mean, I certainly didn't. No, I, mean, but- I still, I mean, I, I look out West and I can kind of, li- you know, I mean, or I can look at the White Sox and I can be like, I know why that team's doing well. I can name hitters and pitchers up and down that lineup. I mean, honestly, who's on the Giants that's doing this? It's kind of, I, I mean, the Dodgers as well. The Dodgers have like all-stars in reserve, you know? Um, so, I mean, I understand why they are so good, but like, I, I mean, the Giants are, I mean, doing it through a combat. I mean, obviously they do have some great hitters and stuff like that and, 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 and pitchers, but it just, they are kind of, it, it, that one certainly came out of nowhere. I mean, realistically, they may be the only team in baseball that makes it to a hundred wins this year. Yeah. They need to go 23 and 20, which there's no evidence given that they're playing 650 ball for 119 yeah. games that they're not going to go 23 and 20. The Dodgers need to go 27 and 16. So that's getting right at the fence. The Dodgers mm-hmm. would need to go 27-16. And then the other team might be the Brewers. They need to go 28 and 15, so even better. You could say the Astros, 30 and 14. But now you're having teams play almost 700 ball yeah. to get to 100 games. And nobody in the AL East is getting to 100 wins. No, no. I mean, they've, uh, they will continue to beat up on each other for the remainder of the season. So that that's kind of at least a surprise me a little bit as yeah. well. Um, maybe in our last few minutes that we have before we move on to Q4 and our interview with Craig O'Shaughnessy, um, since why not transition to tennis? And a question I know I'm going to talk to Craig about, but I might as well ask you. Um, when I looked at the betting odds today on tennis, I noticed that Novak Djokovic basically was, a, was you know, he's minus 138. So if you consider in the VIG and everything else, you're basically saying he's at 50%, maybe even a little better, and the rest of the field gets lower. Um, how would you, would you take Djokovic or would you take the rest of the field? Recognizing, by the way, injury is always a possibility, right? Yeah. I mean, he's 34 years old, it, but would you take, but he has won the first three majors. So would you take Djokovic or would you take the field? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would take Djokovic because I, you know, I, I mean, yes, injury is always a, a possibility. And that's certainly why I would not, you know, I mean, I don't even know what, what, what you'd kind of put that percentage at, but that would, that would be the, 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 the upper bound on what percentage I would give Djokovic. But again, I mean, that guy basically, I mean, of the last like 10 majors, he's definitely won over 50% of them. Right. He's probably won at least. Well, he's won the last three. I, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, yes, he's had to have won five or six out of the last ten. I mean, I think Nadal might have three. And, 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 and most of them, and, and this is a situation where he's not going to be, I mean, again, you know, Federer's not going to be playing. No Federer. Or, no nope, Federer. Is, and Nadal? 
Nadal is playing, at least at the plan at the moment. Nadal had to pull out of some tournaments, but Nadal is playing. I mean, mean, the fact that Nadal is even of questionable health probably drives, you know, would drive that probability for Djokovic even a little bit higher, I would think. You know, I mean, so it's, it's likely that his main competition will actually be coming from somebody that, you know, we're not, you know, certainly not that big three. I think the other thing people want to talk about is he has to win seven matches, but let's face it. He's going to win the first five with almost certainty. So now it's really, he's got to win two matches Mm -hmm. and he's probably a 70% favorite, at least in those two. So that, that gets you to 50% really easily. So this has been the first three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. As I said, in Q4, we're talking to Craig O'Shaughnessy uh, about. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. My name is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I'm here with my co-host Shane Jensen. Some combination of the two of us, Adi Weiner and Cade Massey, are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball, Sirius XM 132, of course, since COVID, the podcast edition. Um, as everybody knows, one of the great parts about hosting Wharton Moneyball is that we get, talk to, we get to talk to experts in the field who can tell us about the application of analytics in sports, and not from two professor guys that sit in our office like Shane and me, but for people that are actually out in the field, and today is no different. Joining us live from Cincinnati is Craig O'Shaughnessy. Um, Craig is widely recognized as the world leader in teaching and analyzing tennis strategy. Um, He focuses in specific areas of the sport on strategy. His online brain game tennis teaches players, coaches, and fans patterns of play and winning percentages that dominate our sport. And of course, for people that want to look at his website, they can go to www.braingametennis.com. Craig, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Shane Jensen. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to join you. I'm in Cincinnati. We're in a rain delay. It's been a bit of a wet tournament so far, but it enables me to join you guys. So there's, uh, there's light at the end of the tunnel here. Well, we're excited, and uh, obviously it's uh, one of the big tournaments of the year. And, of course, we're, of course, building up to the U.S. Open, which we've talked about on the show. But where I wanted to start with this year is since you're, I'm sure, not only are you involved actively in the game, but you're a historian of the game. Could you talk about Novak Djokovic, what we've seen from him so far this year? And, you know, I'm, I'm old enough that I remember the McEnroe and the Connors and the Borg days. Those were my heydays of tennis now going yes. forward. How great a season is this? And how do you think about the season that Djokovic has had? Yeah, Novak's, he just keeps peaking and rising and improving um, what he's doing this year in winning the first three legs of the Grand Slam. You know, it hasn't happened in a long, long time. And, um, you know, obviously things didn't go well at the Olympics. You know, you can look back in hindsight and say, well, maybe it was a stretch to even go there and play that with the amount of matches and and the amount of wear and tear that he's had on his body. But, um, you know, we're seeing something that, you know, we haven't seen since Rod Waver with the possibility if he wins the U S open that he'll have captured all four in the same season. And, uh, it's a remarkable feat. And, you know, Novak, um, I worked with him from 2017 through 2019. The start of, or the end of 2017 was when he was injured. It was a very low point in his career. He had the elbow injury. He tried to come back without surgery. He had to have it. You know, 2018, uh, at the start, you know, Indian Wells wasn't good and Miami wasn't good, but he kept building. By the end of the year, he'd moved from 22 in the world back to number one. Um, and a remarkable feat. Nobody's ever made that jump 
to number one in the season. Um, but again, what we're seeing here this year is simply outstanding from Novak. And, uh, you know, it's going to be great for the sport if he can pull it off. So let me ask you a question from an analytics perspective, and then I know Shane yes. wants to jump in. When you use the word wear and tear, you know, we always talk about that in football, like let's say for a running back, is it the person's age? Is it the number of carries? Is it the number of hits they've taken? How do you think about wear and tear in tennis? Is it purely number of matches played in some period of time? Is it the cumulative number over, over a career, or is it some combination really of all of that? Yeah, it's a really good question because um, I guess different sports will evaluate that in a different manner. Um, the way we look at it in tennis is over a season. And you look at um, you know, the excessive heat that these guys are going through this year, is, uh, it, it does take a toll on its body. Now, you know, we've seen Roger reach 40 and now you know, a guy that hasn't had hardly any injuries at all in his career is now struggling with his knee. But, um, you know, Novak and, and the leading players in the world, they have a full-time physio with them. They have a full-time strength person with them. You know, their nutrition is as good as it can possibly get. So, um, you know, Novak's body, he's lean, he's tall, he's lean, he's, he's limber, he's gumby out there on the tennis court. But at some stage over the season with all of the tough matches, particularly on hard courts, and if they're in hot, humid conditions such as we saw at the Olympics, that's what takes its toll. So, you know, he needs to recharge his batteries. He, um, he's pulled out of the Toronto tournament. He's pulled out of the Cincinnati tournament. So when your body, you know, gets thrown around on the tennis court and gets some niggles here and there, you need a period of a few weeks to get the body back in order, to get rid of those niggles. And also, you know, mentally to, to, to freshen up. So, Time away from the court is very important throughout the season to both physically and mentally prepare for the battles that, that will come here in the second half. Hey, Craig, just to piggyback basically upon that, um, obviously with the Olympics, you know, being such a short turnaround time and being really awful conditions in terms of the heat and humidity, yes. um, I was kind of wondering if that sort of physical kind of toll was greater for some of the older athletes like uh, Djokovic, um, and but whether but you also mentioned kind of the mental recharge time. Do you actually kind of feel like maybe more older, more experienced athletes like Djokovic might actually have, though they have perhaps a little bit of a relative disadvantage in terms of needing physical recharge? Maybe the rental recharge he's able to kind of through his experience balance that a bit better than younger players. That's a great point. Yeah, uh, you know Novak historically when he steps away from the game, we see on his social media that he heads to the mountains and. You know, he gets back to nature. You know, he goes hiking. Um, you know, I remember one time where he, he spent, you know, a, a, a bunch of time away and he was just hiking and having fun with his family and, um, you know, really recharging the batteries, getting back to nature. You know, Novak's age um, really doesn't, you know, tell the story on how supremely fit that he is. You know, every single day he's working on his body. I remember... The very first day, um, it was the end of 2017 when he was coming back. It was the first day he played tennis in six months um, after pulling out of Wimbledon against Thomas Burdich. And we're going to hit at the Monte Carlo Country Club. And, um, you know, we're about ready to start at, at 11. And he gets out there at 10. And he does a full hour to prepare of stretching and plyometrics and, you know, lighter weights. 
And, you know, we get to 11, I'm like, well, obviously we're not going to practice today because what I've seen him just do was so, you know, so difficult. And then at 11, out we go, and he, and he spent two hours on the court. Um, you know, early on, it was actually too much. He got blisters very, very quickly. But the amount of, the amount of effort and the preparation that, that he puts in, uh, it really has to be seen to be believed. It, it, it really is exceptional from him. So, Craig, let me ask you, let's imagine that we could probably all agree, although I don't like to use just purely the number of majors because, you know, people didn't play the yes. Australian as much as they did exactly. before. But, but exactly. let's, let's suppose we can debate and argue that maybe the three greatest tennis players of all time, men, are playing right now, Najal, yes. Djokovic, and Federer. Let's say we can agree to that. Yes. Why can't every tennis player with brain game tennis you teach people strategy patterns of play also since you've worked with Djokovic you know about his training style why can't I hate to say it maybe it's nature over nurture I don't know but why can't everybody just pick one of those three styles say I'm going to devote if they work 10 hours a day I'll work 16 hours a day and I'll get greater than one of these big three why can't one why can't someone else do this yeah it's a it's a really good point you know I've, I've spoken with players here um at the tournament I said you know are you dedicating an hour a week or even an hour every couple of weeks to saying, I really want to beat Rafael Nadal, so I'm going to get an opponent or I'm going to get a hitting partner that hits with tons of spin and I'm going to start preparing for that day. And I may not play him for a year or two years. I may play him in the next tournament. But, you know, you, you've got to get ready for these guys. They're exceptional athletes. Their game is incredible. Um, you know, I was speaking with the coach of a Spanish player here yesterday and we were evaluating his game. And um, one of the, the parts of that, you know, we're talking about core position and the Spanish player traditionally does very well on clay, but doesn't do as well on hard. And, you know, he wanted to help his player. And he, and he came to me and said, you know, can we look at data? Can we look at video? And I said, absolutely, we can do all of those things. And I went and watched him here yesterday. He did win his match, but the adaptation to move from a clay court to a hard court and the willingness just when the ball lands short to move up to the baseline and, and, and take the opponent's time away, which you don't do a lot on play, um, you know, it, it's remarkable that more players are not turning to, <clears throat> to the analytic side and to the strategic side and just let that be the guiding light. Too often in our sport, the guiding light is how do I feel today? How does the court feel? How do the balls feel? Um, you know, I'm just going to go out there and do my thing. And, and, and it's just too tough. It's too tough for sport to go out and do that. You need to be driven by the best strategies in our game, period. Craig, you kind of talk about strategies. And, and I would imagine, I mean, tennis is a very kind of like interestingly complex kind of endeavor in that, you know, you've got these different ty types of surface that you have to basically maintain yes. your ex expertise on. I don't know how, can you kind of maybe talk about like how much variation there is between the top players in terms of how they take on that challenge? Like, do they have, you know, like two days a week on hard to one day a week on clay in the off season, or do they kind of do it more sequentially where they just focus on the, you know, leading up to the French, just focus on clay for a couple months at a time. And like, basically how much have you observed? Is there kind of opt, you know, is there sort of like evolving a more kind of optimal way of doing that? Or is like every, is it just kind of idiosyncratic? Every player's got their own kind of way of scheduling things and, and planning. What happens there is you look forward to the next event you're going to play. 
And that will completely dictate the surface and the conditions that you will, that, that you will prepare. So, you know, if your next event is clay, um, and, and typically on the tour, they go, they go in bunches. So, you know, we have a clay court season, we have a grass court season, we have hard court season. So what the players are going to do is prepare for that specific season on that surface. Um, I, don't, I don't really think uh, any players are saying, okay, this week I'm going to do two on clay and three on hard. Um, it really is dictated by the season and, and, and the court surface that's upcoming. Um, so that, that, that's pretty much how it's done. Whether that's right or wrong, you know, it's, I, I think it's a good idea to, um, to prepare for the, the exact surface that you're going to play on. But, you know, if you're a clay quarter and, and you want to prepare a little bit further down the road, you know, you can get on hard courts as well. There's, there's nothing really wrong with it. And what's happened, you know, in, in kind of their defense, our surfaces have become homogenized. So when you look at the zero through four rally length in our sport, Wimbledon has 71% of all points are played in zero through four shots. Uh, the Australian Open is about 70%. And the US Open and, and, the, and uh, Roland Garros are right exactly the same at 68%. And in fact, I looked at um, 2016, 2017 and 2018, a direct head-to-head comparison over those three years with the uh, US Open and Roland Garros. And it was, it was crazy that, that Roland Garros actually had slightly more short rallies than the U.S. Open, and, it, and the U.S. Open had slightly more longer rallies in nine plus. And what's happened there between the two is that one of the things that dictates court speed the most is the amount of sand that goes into the paint, and that really dictates um, the court speed. So what's been happening in New York is you're putting loading more sand into the, into the top layer of paint on the court I remember a couple of years ago putting my hand down. It's just like sandpaper. It was so rough. So that's a, a big determining factor in kind of evening out, um, whether it's the, the right idea or the wrong idea, but, it, but it's happening that our surfaces are very much coming together. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host Shane Jensen. Uh, we're talking right now live from Cincinnati with Craig O'Shaughnessy. Craig is widely recognized as the world leader in teaching and analyzing tennis strategy. You, if you want to find out more, you can go to his website, uh, BrainGameTennis.com. Craig, I wanted to ask you something. If this were a business, the way we would say is you can't beat the 800-pound gorilla, so you have to take a niche strategy. What stops – let's imagine you were – uh, coaching Stefano Tsitsipas today, what stops you from saying, and I'm exaggerating, but I loved the exaggeration for a reason. Let's say you yeah. went to Tsitsipas and said, only play on clay, you'll become the best clay court player in the world, Rafa's on the downside, Djokovic, it's never been his best surface. I, I joke when I say he's only won two French Opens and he just beat the <laughs> king of clay, but ignoring that for a second, what right. stops another player saying, I can't be better than the big three on all surfaces, so I'll pick a specific surface, focus on that, and that's my best chance to win a major. What's wrong with that as like a training and analytic strategy? Yeah, I mean, it's got ways. Um, you know, I have never, ever thought of it like that uh, because you're essentially saying, I'm only going to be playing tennis for four months of the year. So, you know, I guess play, you've got some, some smaller events earlier in the season before Indian Wells, you know, it goes down to Argentina and South America, but it's typically, you know, ATP 250s and 500s. Um, you know, the thousands really come 
in, uh, in April and May, you go to Monte Carlo, then Barcelona, then Madrid, then Rome. Um, but then, you know, you, you would, you'd hang the rackets up. Maybe you go to Ibiza and hang out by the pool all summer, you know, as you go through the grass court season and then you go back to the hard court season. Um, you know, tennis is really arranged in, in groups. So the yep. only problem with that is you're, you're going to, you know, you can't have a regular job doing that, unfortunately, with the way the tour is organized. Uh, you, you're going to have to take chunks of the season off. Now, that could be a good thing because you're resting and recuperating. You could, if you said, I'm only going to play clay court events, and let's say you win, the, you win Roland Garros, so there's 2,000 points, and you win maybe two other Masters, there's 4,000 points. Um, That's a lot of points. By, yeah, let's say by the end of the year, let's say you get to 6,000. 6,000 won't get you to number one in the world. At the moment, it's around nine to 10,000 points that's going to get you to number one. But I tell you what, it's going to get you into the top five in the world. So if you, if you did say, I'm only clay this season and I do well, I'm still top five in the world. Very interesting. Before we leave uh, Novak, um, what age, I mean, the analytics have looked at this. There's something you may not know. You may know of this. It's called an ELO model. It's literally when player A plates player B, what's the strength of them? And they have Novak's peak actually around four, about five years ago in 2015 and 16. On what dimensions would you say, is he potentially, can he still get better? And if the answer is yes, what do you explain a 34-year-old man? Because, again, I told you what era I come from. Borg was yes. done winning majors at age 26. I think yes. Johnny Mack might have won his last major at age 28. I think the yes. venerable Connors may have won his last one at 30 or 31. I know Sampras beat Agassi. He was 31. So the historic greats never won majors really past age 30. Can Djokovic yes. get better? Do you see him as better than the five years ago, Djokovic? And when will this stop, if ever? have <laughs> yeah, a good point. Um, you know, when we look back at, at Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe and, and that era and beyond, these guys didn't have the dedication uh, to, to their bodies that, that the, today's athlete has. You know, whether it's having a full-time chef, whether it's having a full-time physio or a full-time osteo or a full-time strength trainer. I mean, every single day they are paying attention and developing the temple that is their body. So when you say, you know, Novak's 33 or 34, whatever, whatever he is, you know, th- th- that age is just flat out wrong. I mean, no one, you know, Roger kind of, you know, kick-started this, but no one is doing um, the work that, that, to improve the body, whether it's the flexibility of the body, whether it's the speed of the body um, to, that carries it into an older age. So, you know, Novak's doing an amazing job of pushing father time back. His body, you know, if we didn't know ages and we got a bunch of athletes out there, you know, and, and you had to guess the age of the athlete, there, there, I don't think there would be one person out there that could find a metric that would say, okay, Novak, here's your, here's your age and get it right based on his body. His body is way younger than the actual, you know, the, the physical age of, of when he has his birthday. So, um you know, I think that's that's the, the big difference here is the is the dedication to making sure the body is injury free, the body is strong, the body is well fed, um, and, and it's happening at a level we've never seen before, which is why these guys are playing so well. Uh, you know, deeper into their into, into their careers. 
So before I move into the general topic of analytics and its role in the sport, I wanted to ask you, let's call these rapid fire questions. Maybe give me a 30 second to one minute answer on each. Let's right. start with at the right now, if you went to the betting odds for the U.S. Open, it's basically 50 percent Djokovic, 50 percent the field. Who would you take Djokovic or the field? Oh, Novak for sure. Until Novak loses, uh, there's you don't even contemplate who's anybody else. Maybe you look at the, the bottom side of the draw and say who'll, who'll play him in the final. I remember a few years back when Rafa won it and he declared when he was playing um, Canada that he set himself for this tournament. I had, a, I had a bet with a guy. I said, I'll take Rafa. I'll give you the field simply based on Rafa saying he has set his whole season around that. Uh, Novak's playing for history. I'll take Novak all day. Okay, let's talk about the other part of the big three. If I had to give you over or under... Yeah. For uh, for majors for the rest of yes. their career. Does yes. Nadal win at least one more major? Does Federer win at least one more major? Um, Nadal does. Federer doesn't. OK, that's certainly a big shift in time. I actually one of the reasons I I've, everyone knows that listens to our show Wharton Moneyball. I've been a big Federer fan my whole life. Um, yes. But the bottom line is that to me, the two most historical matches that Djokovic had to win, which was, as we all know, Federer up 8-7, serving 40-15 in the fifth at Wimbledon. Djokovic wins that match 13-12 in the fifth. And this last year at Roland Garros, Djokovic won both of those matches on Federer's best surface and on Nadal's best surface. So to me, for me, that ended the debate. But I don't know what your thoughts about those two matches. I thought the titanic shift. Remember, when if Federer had won that, he'd have gone to 21. It would have kept Djokovic, I think, at the time at 16. I thought at that moment, Roger will not end up with the most majors. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Um, you know, it, it's uh, it, it was an unbelievable match. It was, you know, history making. Um, you know, I did the strategy for that match, and you know, Roger for for a lot of that match was was in charge. And yep. you, know, you know, the, the I, I you know to, to get to match point, he, he served a, at fifteen. Oh, he served an ace down the tee for thirty fifteen, and he served another ace down the tee, and then he goes wide. I'm like. Why didn't he just go ace down the tee or at least go down the tee? You've just served two that worked. I'm not quite sure. I, you know, the strategy on those two points, you know, approaching with a forehand is a very difficult thing. But, um, yeah, those were, that's, you know, one point was a seismic shift in our sport, no question. So let's talk about, before we get, I'm going to move to analytics. I just have one last question now yeah. that I have you. Um, of the non-big three, yeah. if you had to say, I, Craig O'Shaughnessy, I'm going to invest my time in two or three players going forward. Forget who you are working with or not working with. Who yeah. shows you the most promise among the players that are not in the big three? Whenever that time is, two years, three years, five years from now, when the big three are out of the sport full time, who do you see as the next evolution of players? Uh, the one that, that stands out to me the most is Stefano Tsitsipas. Um, you know, the, the ability... To, to play an all-court game, the ability to do well on all surfaces, the ability to have a one-handed backhand but do so well on clay. Um, I think that he will grow and mature. I think he will do better um, coming forward. I think he'll get things figured out. And, you know, Daniil Medvedev, an, an incredible talent, um, but there's holes in the game. You know, there's, there, there's holes there. He's, you know, he, 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 in the next couple of weeks, he could be number one in the world. I mean, he's that close. But at the moment, um, I just think the upside is much more with Stefano Sitsipas to become more of a complete player 
and, and do well on, on more of the surfaces. Some of the younger guys, um, like a Felix, you know, there's the, the, the forehand gets messy on him and uh, I don't think he's quite yet figured out, um, you know, how to really be a, a, be a top-line closer. I think that will probably come, but, you know, the, the jury's still out on that. Um, you know, I'm going to be looking tomorrow at uh, Sebastian Corder here to kind of gauge where he's at. I haven't really seen him play a lot. Yep. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of the, the Americans that are kind of breaking through, but somebody that's simply amazing. I'm not, I'm not quite sure um, th- that, I see, that, that I see them breaking through. So at the moment, for me, it's Sissy Pass. That's very interesting. Well, let me ask you a question. How many of the people that you've mentioned, or not specific names, but how many people are actually using analytics? And where does analytics, where is that in the state of the game right now? Yeah, it keeps improving. You know, I've spoken to you guys or had the pleasure to speak with you guys over the years. And I think, you know, three or four, maybe five years ago, um, you know, at this time, right before the U.S. Open, uh, the discussion was, Craig, you're kind of the pioneer here and you're leading the way. And is it going to take off and is it going to die? And, you know, it's, it's really taking off um, the, the analytical side and the ability to use metrics to figure out the better strategies is being much more adopted by players, um, you know, right up and down uh, our sport, you know, from one to a hundred. I have a lot of discussions with coaches that read the, uh, the articles I write on the ATP and they want to know more. And, you know, like yesterday, the, the Spanish coach, I mean, you know, the Spanish system has, has kind of dominated, you know, Rafa has been at the head of that, but, you know, the analytics that I, that I produce, shows that Raf is actually the king of the zero through four rally length. And, you know, the Spanish system is much more about patience and grinding and, and shot tolerance and, and, and suffering. Um, and, you know, yes, there's an element to all of that. There's, there's an element of truth for sure. But, you know, Rafa, even on clay, is, is just so dominant when the rally length stays in zero through four. You know, it's typically, um, you know, 65 to 70% of all points. And that's the number one. It still remains of all the metrics, I've got a 10-page match intelligence report that I produced from each match. The number one metric is who won the zero through four rally length. That's what I go to first to figure out what happened in that match. So analytics are growing in our sport. Um, there's, you know, there's more people doing it. Um, you know, you go to social media and you see, you see, um, you see people in you know Australia or England or anywhere around the world that are now you know, getting involved. And I think it's great for our sports. So um, it's, it's, it's healthy. It's doing well, just like other sports. We were just late to the game with it. But like all other sports, you can't argue with the numbers. So let me ask one uh, more question about that. How much has technology changed over the last five years? Like, you know, before you could have shot tracking and stuff, but yeah. I assume now players' speed can be mentioned, uh, measured. You could measure, possibly that could tell you something about fatigue. Maybe some players are better moving side to side, forward, back. Um, how much is motion tracking now part of the analytics that's done? Yeah, it's... It's still in the early phases, you know, at Rome, I was at Rome this year. I haven't traveled at all because of COVID, but that was my first trip to go back and work with the Italian Federation. And uh, Andy Murray was there um, and, and I talked to him about, it. he was wearing the catapult um, yep. vest. And, you know, that's something that's, I, I, I believe is very big in other sports such as soccer in, in Europe. Um, and I think Australian rules football have it as well. And, you know, Andy was, using it more as a training week 
um, you know, getting back to getting back to our sport. But I, you know, he's the only guy I've ever seen wearing a catapult vest. You know, I, I don't, I, I don't know of anybody else that's, that's done it. And, you know, the thing where we get more advanced analytics is from a company called Hawkeye. Um, they, they got involved in tennis through line calling, you know, is the ball in or out? Yeah, that's what I'm familiar with, Hawkeye, because of the system that's now, as you know, there are many tournaments that are played without referees now. Hawkeye system makes the calls. Yeah, it's phenomenal, too. So, you know, I've worked with a couple of guys here in Cincinnati, and they've got the, they call it Hawkeye Live. And, you know, it's in or it's out. It's immediate. And it just takes, you know, there's a layer of, you know, arguing with an umpire. There's a layer of, like, I can blame somebody else for a bad line call. Um, all of that is removed and it's instant and it just takes away that argy-bargy that we, you know, it, 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 it doesn't help our sport at all. So I'm a huge fan of Hawkeye Live. I saw, I was at Milan when they experimented with it with the next-gen tournament. I liked it then and I like it here and for sure it, it, it's going to stay. Um, so but the, the, the problem is there's they, they do ball tracking, they do player tracking. Unfortunately, you know, it, in tennis, we, we want to hide our analytics. We've got something good. It's like, oh, I'm not going to share it with anybody else. And we're very fragmented at the top of the sport. So collecting data, you've got IBM, you've got Infosys, you've got SAP, you've got Hawkeye, um, you, you've got federations doing it on their own. You've got people like me that, you know, I, I, I basically kind of pioneered the term serve plus one um, from studying the Dow and seeing how many forehands he hit as the first shot after the serve. So, you know, I, I think... I think there's another revolution coming in the next one to two years where, where tennis data will really take another step forward. I don't think it's there this year. I haven't seen the companies that, that we need to be able to do it, to bring that information, but surely um, we're, we're getting closer and closer. Well, Craig, we want to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. It's been great to talk to you, especially live from Cincinnati. Um, we're going to make, for those listeners, we're going to make our predictions in the show as well about Djokovic versus the field. But um, we're seeing a historic season. It must be amazing for you having been such a big part of Novak's career. And again, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Well, it's my pleasure. And uh, I, I love talking to you guys. It's, it's right up my alley. And um, I thank you very much for thinking of me and having me on the show. Yeah, it's great talking. This we've been talking to Craig O'Shaughnessy. Craig live from Cincinnati at the uh, Western and Southern Open. Craig's widely recognized as one of the world leaders in teaching and analyzing tennis strategy. And if you want to find out more, please go to his website www.braingametennis.com. So this has been four quarters of Wharton Moneyball. On behalf of myself, my co-host Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, and Kate Massey, we'd like to thank you for joining us. I'd like to thank our producer Matt Datz. Thank our associate producer and sound engineer Dion Simpkins. Uh, between now and next week. Enjoy your sports, enjoy your analytics, and we'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball. <laughs>